Welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Bishwanath Khosh Dastidar, Honorary Research Director at the Institute for Fertility Research in Kolkata in India. Bish is also a clinical tutor in obstetrics and gynecology at the Institute of Postgraduate Medical Education and Research and the Seshukal Kanani Memorial Hospital, which is also in Kolkata. He was also a former clinical fellow at Cambridge University Hospitals, the National Health Service Foundation Trust here in Britain. In this episode, we'll be discussing some of his particular research interests and how the use of telemedicine and female-centered healthcare can improve outcomes for patients. Bish completed his medical degrees in Kolkata, followed by his master's thesis in obstetrics and gynecology in Mumbai. He trained in the techniques of in vitro fertilization or IVF at Oxford University after being awarded both Felix and Commonwealth scholarships. At Oxford, he graduated with a distinction at the top of his class and was awarded the highest overall score in his entire year. Bish was recently awarded the National Youth Icon in IVF Award by the Indian IVF Society. He's a profound interest in the social and ethical aspects of reproductive healthcare and contributes to voluntary advocacy work in the field. Now, this part really got my attention. In his spare time, Bishwanath is a big fan of cooking, and so am I. And he spends a lot of time rustling up Chinese, Italian, and Bengali food. And this made him very popular with friends and housemates during his Oxford days, I'm sure, and makes him my hero as I'm a huge fan of these cuisines. He's also an aspiring poet, writing both English and Bangla, and hopes that his work will be published in future. And if it's anything like the rest of his contributions to humanity, I'm sure it'll be awesome. So it's an utter privilege to have Bishwanath here with us today. And I look forward to hearing more about the amazing work he's done throughout his extraordinary career thus far. So welcome aboard, Dr. Bishwanath Ghosh Dastida. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for that extremely kind, and I would say rather generous introduction, as well as for having me on board for this podcast. And uh, yeah, I look forward to having this chat with you. Thank you so much. Well, I, the, the, the challenge, you know, it's always lovely. Uh, uh, and, and I think that there's uh, an inverse relationship. The more accomplished people are, and I've had the privilege of meeting so many wonderful people on this podcast, the more accomplished they, that they are, the more humble they are. And I think that there's, there's a causative relationship. Maybe we should study it and, and publish a paper on, on it. So let's start, let's dive right in, Bish. The world's first IVF or test tube baby was Louise Brown, who was born on the 25th of July, 1978 in Oldham in Northwest England. I don't think a lot of people know that. I was certainly around for it. The second, a mere 67 days later, was born in India. So tell us, this must have had some kind of impact on, on you and your decision to pursue obstetrics and gynecology initially and then to specialize in IVF. Is, is that a fair assumption? Oh, it absolutely did, Jonathan, and in very personal ways. So of course, I wasn't born uh, when the world's first test tube baby was born in 1978. Rub but, it in. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, so uh, the, the gentleman, the doctor based in India who was responsible for the first Indian birth a few months after the, the Cambridge uh, success, 
uh, he was a direct teacher and a direct mentor of my dad who was uh, a medical graduate who was a medical uh, fresh med- medical graduate at that time and uh, this gentleman's pioneering work got ostracized by society the entire medical community questioned the ethics and the veracity of his claims uh, to cut a long story short dr subhash mukhopadhyay committed suicide and uh, my dad in collaboration with a much more senior uh, collaborator pledged to carry forward this technology and this branch of science and research in india which gave rise to india's second ivf pregnancy and delivery in 1986 uh so i've really grown up with ivf from when i was 4 5 years old you know all the conversations in the house everything was ivf so so yeah in fact i i never really signed up for obstetrics and gynecology to be honest i signed up for ivf obstetrics and gynecology was just the necessary pathway leading to it well you know sort of reflecting back i was alive for this and in fact um i was at medical school at the time and it made an impact on on me certainly it was very exciting there were so many exciting things happening in medicine and the professor of obgyn as the americans call it at liverpool was a chap named beasley professor beasley and he had a reputation as a tough so and so and i was recently with a group of my med school chums and they told me that when they would if they did exams outside of liverpool uh, people would say oh you you work in beasley's institution we're going to have to ask you harder questions <laughs> so i certainly recall it and i remember that there were you know cameramen on the streets throngs of people there was huge interest in it so it it's it was a true inflection point in modern medicine and obviously in things like a microscopy instruments that you needed to to make ivf possible i mean it really it 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 really engendered a a technological revolution didn't it absolutely because you see uh for those who are not very clearly aware of what ivf entails it's it's an amalgamation and a combination of so many different branches of technology science medicine research you have women's health on the one hand you have uh clinical gynecology molecular biology microscopy instrumentation uh cell cell culture genetics everything comes together for the field which is really what made it so exciting for me you know as a young uh, medical student growing up so yeah of course and and obviously you had the influence at home so let's let's uh, dig in here one of your research interests relates to creating personalized physiologic and uh, stimulation treatments for patients undergoing ivf and in order to focus holistically on overall female health autonomy the reduction of treatment burden tell us more about this and how what you mean by a personalized approach and how it might improve outcomes you know jonathan that's very that's a very good question and it's something which is a bit of a pet peeve of mine i'm very passionate about it so just to give you a minute's worth of background uh, again due to my privileged background and my early start in ivf when i was uh, re- relatively an early starter in the subject i was just a fresh uh, md i had the unusual opportunity to be very uh, intricately involved in organizing one of india's earliest proper global world congresses in the subject which was attended by some of the absolute pioneers in the field such as uh, professor bart fauser from the netherlands and uh, professor rene friedman from france professor geeta nargand from the uk and it was inspiring to see their passion 
for the subject. And when I say subject, what I mean is, you know, in medical school, amongst a lot of peers and teachers, yeah, the focus was always on the clinics and the results and the outcome. But these people were talking in terms of lateral considerations, you know, women's health and how treatment affects women's physiology and how to think outside the box and how to go beyond the brief and think for the woman, for your patient. So it was very inspiring. This was a long time back. It was in 2011. And I think from then on, it's been very clear to me that IVF, apart from just being a business and medicine, has to focus on the holistic treatment of the woman, take care of her physiology, understand the physiology better, the role of stress, the role of nutrition, micronutrients, obesity, uh, insulin, and the role it plays in our overall metabolic health and how it relates to reproductive health and IVF. And there is precious little focus on these things still recently, of course. And yeah, it's definitely uh, a driving passion. Wonderful. So uh, since its inception, IVF has been a continuously uh, shifting field. Well, what do you feel have been the major breakthroughs since you began your career and what's on the horizon that you find particularly exciting? You know, since I began, uh, since I began training and working in IVF, it's been around 15 years or so. I think the major breakthroughs have been the introduction of uh, GnRH antagonists to the clinical treatment armamentarium. Uh, of course, if I have to trace the history of IVF, there are lots of important breakthroughs, but I'm just focusing on the ones I've seen evolve in front of my eyes. So the introduction of GnRH antagonists have definitely uh, given us much more flexibility to schedule cycles to prevent ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome or OHSS, uh, use lesser dosages of gonadotropins, which of course leads to lesser side effects on the overall female physiology. On the laboratory side, I think the most important development has been the advent of vitrification, which is, you know, flash freezing. Earlier, we used to freeze to store gametes and embryos by slow cryopreservation, which has been replaced now by and large all over the world by vitrification, initially pioneered in Japan and in Korea. And we have much better uh, results with vitrification, both in terms of post-thaw survival of frozen embryos and blastocysts and gametes as well. It allows us to store surplus embryos instead of wasting them for transfer in subsequent cycles. It allows us for genetic testing in patients where it is indicated and required. And uh, overall, it's a boon to the, to the field. And of course, that brings me to genetic testing. So pre-implantation genetic test testing or screening as well, not only in patients or families where there is specific indication for history of genetic disease, but also in higher age group women, women with recurrent implantation failures, and uh, so on, to generally improve the results of IVF, I would say these are the biggest developments that uh, I have seen in the last 15 years. And to address the second part of your question, you know, it's interesting. So I was, uh, I had a paper at the annual meeting of the ASRM, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine in Anaheim in October last year. And... Uh, it was very surprising because, I mean, I'm, I'm a regular, I either attend or I present at uh, the ASRM as well as the annual European meeting, that's ESHRE. And the, there appeared to be a paradigm shift in the overall discourse in the conference over those four days. At least 60% of all the discussions and a lot of the uh, uh, talks and topics focused on AI, on, on the advent and development of artificial intelligence and IVF. 
And it was fascinating. I mean, it is exciting. It is fascinating. But as I hope that we will address it later on in this podcast, it's also slightly worrying because uh, I think it needs to be uh, dealt with very carefully and very smartly. But I think AI is going to be the future in IVF uh, in a lot of different aspects. We have to harness uh, its potential well and we have to be very careful how we use it. But yeah, it's going to be a big player in the coming years. So um, I believe that you believe that there's a need for shift in research focus in IVF from making the practice more complex to focusing on, you know, again, overall health outcomes. You've highlighted the importance of returning to patient-centered treatment and to research priorities which champion female reproductive rights and autonomy. Tell us why you feel that that shift is so necessary and how it could improve patient care. And by the way, um, <laughs> I'm not supposed to go in the direction of, of politics, but you know, maybe you can ruminate if you want to dig into how national politics are playing a role in um, uh, female health issues around the globe. <laughs> and I'm sorry if that puts you on the spot. And if you don't want to, that's fine also. But anyway, d- deal with the first part of the question, if you would. Oh, absolutely, I agree with you. And uh, national politics, Jonathan, uh, everywhere. I mean, the little that I know of, uh, it's important in this context in India, in the US, and none of us are exceptions, you know, it's it's everywhere. Uh, we as a community are very aware of, at least in India, what's happening, and we're trying our best to kind of, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure if you're aware, but uh, the Indian government has come up with recent IVF ART uh, laws and surrogacy laws, which some parts of it are not very evidence-based, we feel, as practitioners of the subject. So we are in constant advocacy and engagement with the government to kind of take a look at the issues which need to be ironed out. And as you're very well aware, even in the US and different parts of the world, so I agree with you, I completely agree with you. But to return to your question, to return to your primary question, yeah, I, I do feel that it's very, very important to put the woman at the center of the entire project of the treatment because she's really the person we are here for. And, uh, you know, it's fine to develop cutting-edge technology and new innovations as long as you're very clear-minded in terms of what you plan to do with it, how you plan to apply it, what your outcome measures are, and how you plan to use it in a way which will be beneficial for your patient. Because at the end of the day, that's what all of us are here for, for the benefit of the patient. You know, just to give you some data, I mean, of course, you're completely aware of this, but this is more for your listeners. Let's, Let's look at... Uh, the NIH, okay? I mean, I'm not even talking about India here because in terms of research, innovation, funding, uh, I have definitely seen in my short career that countries like the UK and the US are definitely a step ahead. So let's just go to the gold standard. The NIH, not until 1993, uh, was it mandated that you have to include women in clinical trials. Not until 2016, this largest biomedical funding source in the world required inclusion of both sexes in animal studies when you're trying to, you know, do basic science research. In 2018 was, you know, 15% of the NIH budget allocated to women's health. So I think what we're seeing here is that despite uh, great technology, great science, great innovation, there has always been a fundamental shift of focus, or, or should I say lack of focus on understanding women's health 
women's physiology, because women's physiology, especially ovarian aging, because that's particularly what we're discussing here in terms of women's physiology related to IVF, ovarian aging, menopause, it's all part of, of the spectrum, right, which leads to different complications and sequelae, infertility, P- PCOD, obesity, uh, future cardiovascular health implications, future bone health implications, cancer implications. So women's physiology works differently from male physiology, and there just hasn't been enough focus on it. And a study has estimated that the global economic impact of menopause in particular is going to be $150 billion in the future. And this is all part of the spectrum of ovarian age and infertility, and we, we are just not putting enough focus on it, right? I mentioned AI to you, how it's taking over in a big way. But, you know, we have to ask ourselves how we wish to use it. With IVF currently, implantation rates, pregnancy rates, are much better than natural, spontaneous human fecundity. Okay. Now, I am not... How much much better? Can you quantify that? At least two to three times. Wow. Wow. I, I am not trying to imply for a minute here that we should stop research on trying to further refine and further improve uh, techniques and technologies in IVF. No, of course, that should go on. But the question is that we are already doing better than nature. And complete, rigorous, continuous global focus is just on trying to further refine it and further fine-tune it. But there isn't enough focus on what it is doing to the woman at a holistic level, her overall health, her you know, we're in the middle of an obesity pandemic. We're in the middle of a PCOD pandemic. In the outpatient department in consultations, every second patient I see literally nowadays is a PCOD patient with long-term health implications for cardiovascular diseases, cancer, everything. And, you know, nutrition. I mean, who talks about nutrition in IVF clinics? Nearly nobody nowadays. And it's just amazing how much most people don't understand about the role of inflammation and unhealthy food and micronutrition, micronutrients on health and definitely on female ovarian health. So I think we need to definitely keep on trying to improve clinical technologies and laboratory technologies. AI definitely has a role. But, you know, do you say you're designing an AI-based study in an IVF clinic? Do you want to use your time and your money and your effort in using that AI to see how to improve worker efficiency and how to improve the number of cycles you can perform in a day with the current number of staff you have? Or do you want to use that AI technology to analyze data and find possible interesting links between different aspects of female overall health and obesity and PCOD or nutritional profiles with infertility and different markers, biomarkers? So that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Of course, you need to use AI. You need to be very tech uh, forward looking. But get the priorities right. We need to get our focus right. We need to get the direction of research right. Well, switching topics slightly, um, the COVID-19 pandemic proved a catalyst for the adoption of virtual healthcare and telemedicine in many countries, something that we've talked a lot about in different specialties on this podcast. Can you summarize for us your recently published article, A Virtual Bridge to Universal Healthcare in India, and tell us why this is so important, particularly in more rural communities, which perhaps um, have little to no healthcare infrastructure. India, for the, the folks who haven't been, is a dichotomy. You have these incredible high-tech hubs 
and thriving massive cities and then you have rural areas that are just totally different it's like two entirely different countries oh you're absolutely right it's like you know different worlds juxtaposed upon each other i mean there's very uh, there's very clear data to show that you know around two-third to three-fourth of the national population uh, are resident in villages. They live in villages and suburbs and exactly the same number, around two-third to three-fourth of all healthcare facilities, hospitals, pharmacies, doctors are situated in urban centers, in nodal urban centers. And, uh, you know, the per capita availability of a doctor in a village is around 25% of what it is in, in an urban center. So there's massive disparity. Uh, we, we have cases. So I work at the SSKM hospital here, like you uh, said during your introduction. And uh, we get patients who have traveled sometimes for an entire day. You know, they've traveled for 16, 18 hours just to avail of qualified, safe treatment in a tertiary medical hospital in a city from a village where these facilities don't really exist. So uh, what we felt was that uh, there is a huge, huge role that telecare and telemedicine has to play here. I'll tell you how it came about. So when the pandemic started in 2020, uh, I got together with 30 of my uh, classmates from my medical school. We all did our MDs together. And uh, we decided because, you know, as soon as the pandemic broke out on 23rd March, the the Indian government announced a lockdown of transportation, hospitals, only essential services were on regular routine healthcare came to a standstill because patients were encouraged to only visit hospitals for emergency situations. So a lot of patients, I mean, they might not had, have had an emergency at that moment, but were still uh, in need of healthcare. And uh, those options weren't really there. So we floated a pro bono service, very temporary out of a Facebook page, very hastily put together. Uh, to offer uh, medical advice free of charge as a voluntary service to these people. And uh, I think over a period of two to three months, we saw around 500 patients, 500 consults. We were able to uh, solve a lot of their queries online. And uh, what is very interesting is there's one particular patient who, who presented with an acute abdomen who we diagnosed online. I mean, of course, it wasn't a complete diagnosis, but as, as much as you can do online that uh, he was suffering from an acute cholecystitis. And we referred him to one of our colleagues who was working on the emergency that day in a hospital. He underwent a cholecystectomy. It's pretty much a life-saving process. So, you know, it got us thinking. It got us thinking that, uh, wait a minute, this is a tremendous potential. I mean, we are novices, 30 people out of a Facebook group, but that's just one life saved. So if you can scale up this effort, with the right tools, with the right supportive infrastructure, just imagine what could be achieved. And uh, it's really the insights from these experiences. I got together with two of my colleagues who are based in Oxford right now, and uh, we we just you know wrote up our uh, our feelings and thoughts and observations uh, in a in a piece which was accepted uh, in a paper, and we are working. Then we launched a study. We launched a pan-India survey amongst doctors working in the middle of COVID uh, for their opinions on telemedicine, the problems they're facing, the uses, the pitfalls. And we've got some very interesting data, which we are now writing up. So that will hopefully be published uh, uh, during the course of this year. And we, we genuinely feel, and this is what we proposed in that paper, that for a country like India with 
very limited infrastructure in the in the outskirts in isolated areas uh, there's tremendous potential to establish telecare and this is what is unique about our proposition because telecare of course is already in use in india we propose that telecare could be uh, established as the first default healthcare appointment system and from there you triage and from there you decide who to refer for in person consultation and that could be perhaps the fastest the easiest and the most cost effective way to achieve universal healthcare in india which is still a long shot and which is it might be said here one of the sustainable development goals that india has committed to by 2030 so going back to uh, reproductive health uh, ahead of the g20 summit um which was held in Bali, Indonesia, in November of 2022, you published an article entitled Reproductive Health India Towards 2030. You used this to implore your country to prioritize the development of innovative strategies to bridge healthcare gaps in general and address unmet reproductive healthcare needs in particular. What are the specific unmet healthcare needs for females and which innovative strategies would you propose to meet them? you know uh jonathan again just some data to begin with so approximately half of all pregnancies in india are unintended and uh, around 60% of them end up in abortions of which around half again are unsafe abortions which are carried out by uh, un- unlicensed practitioners in with very bare minimum uh, facilities and infrastructure very little focus on uh, safety etc and it's been estimated that uh, the economic costs of this is uh, immense i mean there's a study which has estimated that every additional rupees 100 spent on widening access to contraception and family planning in india uh, and rupees 100 is around just above a us dollar would end up in the, in the bigger picture in the long term would end up saving an additional rupees 250 that's around 3 uh overall long term in terms of you know newborn care and maternal care and abortion services and emergency services which wouldn't be need- needed as a result of that initial investment so it's an economic imperative to focus on this lack of access to contraception it is a social and cultural imperative as well you know because lack of access to contraception in india isn't just a factor of uh, access it's it's also very intricately dependent on the stigma associated with contraception the socio cultural uh, realities that women have to deal with on a day to day basis uh, in terms of lack of female autonomy and reproductive rights and lack of autonomy over personal reproductive choices and bodily choices just as an example you know so when i'm on the night shift in the labor ward or at, at any time and a woman is undergoing a cesarean section uh, say that's a second childbirth or third childbirth and uh, bef- before so you know part of the indian national program is to offer a postpartum intrauterine contraceptive device a ppiucd to all women after their second birth in in order for pregnancy spacing and uh, while she's on the operating room table and the baby has been delivered and we're about to insert the ppiucd we just refresh the consent once again from her you will be surprised as to how many women ask us 
to stop at that moment and consult with their mother-in-law, father-in-law, husband waiting outside the operating room before we can go ahead with that temporary, very reversible, very safe contraceptive approach. Mm-hmm. Similarly, you know, when we when when the surgery is over and we go out and we meet the we meet the family, you will be surprised as to how often the first question is whether the child is a girl or a boy and not really how the woman is doing, whether she's alive or whether she's healthy or whether she's doing well after the surgery. So, you know, there's a big picture which emerges out of these anecdotes. uh, And that is that uh, there is a severe problem in terms of female reproductive autonomy and the right of a woman over her own bodily choices. And it's a spectrum. This ranges from contraception to infertility. You know, Uh, very recently... And again, this is pretty. This is pretty shocking to the entire IVF community in India. There was a political debate on one of these. You know, India is a hotbed of politics. There are hundred political parties, and they are always name calling each other. So, in one of the political debates, a particular politician, I will not name him on this podcast, uh, was trying to was trying to ridicule uh, the comments of another politician of another party political party. And in trying to draw an analogy, what he said is, and I'm going to translate this in English, what he said, it effectively meant, this gentleman, I don't know whether he's smart or whether uh, he's supposed to have any IQ. And and I would assume that he has a father and that he's not a test tube baby and so on and so forth, blah, blah, blah. And it is absolutely shocking. And this particular politician is actually supposed to be, he's, he's, uh, He's regarded as a very uh, educated and enlightened uh, part of the young brigade uh, politicians of West Bengal of the state. And it was shocking. So, you know, even in 2020, comments like this of whether uh, a test tube baby has a father or not, and trying to use that term in a demeaning way, it just goes to show where we are still standing in the 21st century, at least in this context. And it is very, very important to return this agency of reproductive rights and choices and autonomy back to the woman in order to make sure that uh, we can achieve the kind of reproductive health outcomes that we would like to see. Yeah, I um, I think about, and I'm obviously going to tread warily here, uh, the impact of female reproductive autonomy, the impact that it could have socially, globally on so many, so many existential threats to our survival as a species um and you know i think you're doing amazing work and i guess that takes me to what is my last question a question that um that i like to ask all my guests if you were granted three wishes in your field of healthcare, what would they be well these are very interesting question and i think uh firstly i would say that uh you know, I, I know it's going to be repetitive, but it really is based on and draws from what I've been saying for so long on this podcast that I would love to see a paradigm shift in the approach of practitioners, doctors, policymakers towards treatment of women in general. And while, you know, carrying out reproductive services, infertility services, contraception services in particular to women. Because, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I think it's just a spectrum, uh, whether we are talking about contraception or whether we are talking about infertility and IVF. I mean, these might initially appear to be two opposite sides of the spectrum, but they are 
distinct yet congruent faces of the same prism. It, uh, it just depends on from what angle we're looking at it. And uh, do this by keeping the woman's choice, the woman's reproductive autonomy at the center, uh, focus on holistic treatment, focus on mild uh, treatment, the minimum amount of treatment, the minimally invasive treatment, minimum amount of dosages of medicines and injections, which could be effective in giving her the outcome that she wants. Focus on diet, micronutrients, health, stress, because these have such a huge impact on overall prognosis and uh, medical management. Uh, you know, there are there are studies which have shown, and this is a study by Dr. Fauser and Dr. Geetha Nagan, that if you, if you do an IVF cycle with lesser amount of hormones, mild stimulation IVF, it reduces costs, reduces patient distress, gives rise to better compliance, better birth weights, and of course, it's much more safe and physiological. So we really need to think in terms of these approaches by, and also place the patient at the center of it all. So that would be one. Uh, the second would be, I would like to see much more uh, gender sensitivity training in medical curricular development in India. I mean, a lot of my education and training has been in this country. I've really uh, been trained between India and the UK. And I, I found that uh, maybe 95, 98% of the medical training in India focuses on clinical skills and surgical skills and, you know, core technical ability and knowledge. Uh, but there's uh, not much focus on development of soft skills and gender training and gender sensitivity. Uh, I think that's very important. And uh, I don't know, the third wish, well, I'll make that a personal wish slightly. You know, so I was at Oxford and that was pretty much the best couple of years of my life. And I uh, have since been in Cambridge, which, you know, it's a nice place, but I don't think it holds a candle to Oxford. Well, that's, that's uh, them's fighting words. <laughs> <laughs> and I would give anything to be able to go back to that city and that university for maybe another year or six months for some kind of training or uh, observership or fellowship opportunity. Uh, or maybe even to the US, you know, I mean, I had a wonderful opportunity in 2017 to train for a year at the Walter Reed Center in, in, uh, in Bethesda. Yeah, Bethesda. At, yeah, in DC uh, under... Uh, Professor Alan DeCherney, who is one of the leading lights of our field uh, at the NIH Center. But unfortunately, they didn't have funding. And at that time, that phase of my life, it was very difficult for me to sustain myself for a year in the U.S. Uh, without any funding. So that didn't happen. But oh, I would give anything for uh, such an opportunity again. Yeah, well, I'm sure that anywhere that you chose to, to go would be privileged to have your participation um, and... I would encourage you to do so. Um, uh, Bethesda is an amazing place. There are so many amazing places around the world where, you know, um, when I've traveled, it's always struck me that um, whatever, if I've been there as a teacher, whatever I teach, I learn five, th five times as much as I teach. So um, um, good on you. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. I'd like to thank you for taking the time to talk to us today, Dr. Bishwanath Ghosh Dastida, and for all you're doing for patients and the promotion of safe reproductive health care. Um, it's been a real pleasure to speak to you, and I'm looking forward to a cook-off with you, and you can teach me some of your recipes, and I'll show you. You can tell me what I'm doing wrong with mine. It's been a pleasure and a privilege, uh, Sakir, and uh, I look forward to when you find time to visit India to maybe have that 
cook-off that you so uh, interestingly mentioned. I, I look forward to it. Thank you so much. Well, I've been there a number of times and I can't wait to go back. So, folks, please consider subscribing to the EMJ podcast so that you never miss an episode. Like us on social media. It does help. Please check out our substantial archives and join us next week for another fantastic episode. Until then, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakia, and until the next time, please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now. Bye.